Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Mark Cornwall. Professor Cornwall is Professor of Modern European History at Southampton University. He has written and co-authored and or co-edited or edited a good number of books dealing with Central European history in the late 19th, early 20th century. And today we are discussing his latest edited book, Sarajevo 1914, Spark, Spark, Sparking the First World War, published by Bloomsbury Academic. Welcome, Professor Cornwall. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be with you. Professor, what are the origins of, the, of this particular book that you've edited? Well, this book came out of a conference we held in 2014 in um, in England, and um, that conference was very much trying to think about the anniversary of the outbreak of the war in 2014, and to uh, look at look at um, Look at the origins of the First World War um, in a new way. I suppose we were we were we were mainly trying to get some new angle on the war, um, and my own interest in the subject is um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the Habsburg Empire, and uh, my research has been on that for many years. And also, I've always been in, very much interested in the Yugoslav question and the creation of Yugoslavia. So that's um. That um, helped me to focus my thoughts on producing a conference and then a book which would be thinking about the origins of the war, particularly in the Balkans or in Southeast Europe, really. In your introduction in the book titled The Southern Slav Question, I noticed that you omitted two um, uh, perhaps important facts. The first one was that in the early 1880s, uh, the o- then Obrenovich king of Serbia offered to sell the kingdom to Vienna, something that uh, Vienna refused. And the second one was that up to uh, a year prior to the annexation crisis of 18, I'm sorry, 1908-1909, uh, Vienna was relatively relaxed about its position in the Balkans because as as per a prior agreement with Russia in 1897, both powers had agreed to put the Balkans on ice, in quotation marks. Why the omittance of these two facts? Oh, you mean I omit, I omit those two facts? Um, yeah, um, well, I think there was a amount I could say. I'm, I was mainly trying in that introduction to introduce the Southern Slav question as a problem. Um, I think the fact that yes, certainly um, Serbia was a client state of the Habsburg Empire in the 1880s and the 1890s, and that uh, gave the Habsburg Empire some security, feeling that the, this problem had uh, not completely been put to bed, but that it was it was under some control. 
But from the 1890s, I would say that becomes more problematic. I mean, the last Brenovich King, Alexander, um, certainly started to drift away from the Habsburg orbit in the 1890s. And uh, relations between Austrian, this isn't usually said, but relations between Austria and Serbia certainly seem to be getting a bit worse from Austria's point of view or the Habsburg Empire's point of view in the late 1890s. Um, you're right that, yes, the, um, there was a, a special entente concluded between the Habsburg Empire and Russia in 1897, and that kept the peace to some degree in the Balkans. Uh, uh, yes, kept, kept, um, kept this problem on ice uh, for perhaps about 10 years, but I think it, it's always there under the surface, and the problem was being on ice meant that uh, it meant that uh, the Habsburg Empire didn't, or the Habsburg elite did not particularly look for solutions to this empire during that period. I think it's sometimes said that you know while while Russia was away fighting Japan in the Far East, uh, while Russia had all its problems with 1905, some historians say you know um, Austria Hungary should have just have gone in and crushed Serbia at that point and dealt with this problem once and for all. Um, so I think it's a um, the Southern Slav question, as I call it, because that's the that, that's the kind of a key theme of the book. Um, I think this is a problem which is it's always there in some form, and I think the problem always for the Habsburg authorities is how will they deal with this? Will they just try to ignore it? Will they um, will they go in and try to uh, use force to deal with it? Will they try to use compromise to deal with it? I think all those all those um, ways are. Um, all those all those methods are, are, are contemplated or um, tried at some point. Um, uh, it's a bit of a mixture, and the danger is the danger is that events will get out of their control because they haven't taken uh, the initiative. I suppose. Would it be not the case that one of the results of the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s was to undermine the teleological reading of the Southern Slav question? of uh, pre-1914, that, that in essence the 1918 solution, in quotation marks, was not in fact inevitable? Uh, yes, absolutely. I don't, think, I don't think it is inevitable. And um, of course nowadays Serb-Croatian Slovene historians will certainly not be suggesting that there's an inevitability about creating Yugoslavia. I think, yes, part of the uh, problem before 1914 or before 1918, is this notion, um, this fear in Habsburg minds, uh, in, the, in the feeling of the Habsburg government, that some kind of um, Yugoslav solution was inevitable and that they must um, try to deal with this fast before it came about. Um, and also, certainly, it's what motivates many um, nationalists in the region itself, down in the south of the, uh, um, Europe, it certainly motivates um, nationalists in the region thinking that there's an inevitability. Um, but yes, I mean, I would certainly not say that there's an inevitability about this. And um, uh, I think the book uh, shows actually, that the essays in the book show rather well the, uh, the variety of contexts um, and the, variety, the kind of fluidity in society, the fluidity in politics, that there were many, many solutions possible to come out of this, this South Slav problem. Um, it just happens that this Yugoslav 
state came out, but that it could only really happen that after after a cataclysmic war, and that's what happened 1914 to 18, of course. So um, yeah, I think I think it's one of the strengths of the book, essentially, that it does show the um, the complexity of this region and the various solutions. Or um, there was no inevitability that there would have to be a Yugoslav state, certainly. Yeah. In the Hanning essay in the book titled Franz Ferdinand, Power and Image, what explains the Stefan Zweig negative memories of Franz Ferdinand? Why did Zweig's image have such purchase with so many historians subsequently? Um, the negative image. Um, well, I think... Uh, Yes, well, that probably I I think to some extent. Well, he was Franz Ferdinand. I think that chapter by is by Alma Hanig, who's written a good biography of Franz Ferdinand, a German historian. She's written a good biography for Franz Ferdinand. But she, I think, she shows rather well the degree to which um, Franz Ferdinand didn't go out of his way to make uh, friends. And uh, although not that much was known about him. There were a lot of rumors circulating about him as a, um, I think one, one C.A. McCartney, the historian, said he was a deeply unpleasant man or a deeply nasty man. So um, uh, there were a lot of rumors circulating that this was a um, um, uh, somebody with very strong prejudices, uh, rather a bigot, uh, hated Italians, hated Hungarians, hated Serbs, had very strong um uh, very strong views on many issues. It was deeply Catholic as well. So um, I think uh, there was there was enough there to build up a very negative picture about him. And although uh, the other side of him is as a as a family man and as a um, somebody who cared for his family and his children very much, and um, you know we might see see some other sides to him. I think there was enough there which was deeply negative. Uh, which was the rep- uh, which was the reputation that survived his assassination. Now, having said that, of course, um, after his assassination, there were um, <clears throat> there was a real opportunity, perhaps, there after his assassination, to build up more of a positive image about him as a kind of as a victim, obviously, as a martyr or, uh, or something like that. But I think I mean part of the trouble with this is that uh, obviously. The Habsburg Empire disappears after 1918, and so there's a lot there's a lot more opportunity then to interpret these figures in a very negative way by the people by the states that come after the Habsburg Empire. Um, so if I think from you know, Stefan Zweig's point of view, um, uh, he would have picked up a lot of the negative rumours about. He, I don't, as far as I know, he never met Franz Ferdinand, but he would have picked up a lot of the negative rumours about Franz Ferdinand in Austrian society. And in Austrian society, I don't think he was any more loved than uh, elsewhere in um, other parts of the empire. So, yeah, he's a, he's a deeply, um, I would say he's quite a, an enigmatic figure, Franz Ferdinand, because of the fact that um, uh, he was not very prone to, uh, well, he was not very known in society publicly, but enough of his views seemed to kind of seep out to suggest that if he had come to the throne, he would have uh, he would have tried to impose himself um, uh, quite demonstratively and reassert Habsburg power. I think that's what was what was what was feared by many peoples around the empire, 
although some peoples around the empire also thought of him as somebody who might be able to do something for them. So he, he aspired, you know, he, he, um, he brings up hopes and fears in, um, in politicians around the empire. Yeah. So that's my kind of answer to that. I think he's, um, you know, he's deeply, um, he's an interesting figure to investigate. And I think that uh, chapter in the book is, um, is tries to do that. Yeah. How powerful was uh, Franz Ferdinand's uh, so-called second government in the Belvedere Palace in the years prior to 1914? I think that becomes that becomes quite influential. Um, the uh, yes, he set up his own um, what was called the workshop in the Belvedere Palace, and um, it was almost like a, um, an alternative government to uh, Franz Joseph's um, Franz Joseph's. Um, uh, regime, the emperor's regime. But I think, um, yeah, it's influential in that um, Franz Ferdinand did manage to put um, influence, influence some key appointments. Uh, he manages to put um, Conrad into the position of chief of the general staff. He manages to uh, put certain ministers in place. Um, so he, he is gradually building up a network of contacts uh, in the Austrian half of the empire, certainly, but and also, as the book shows, also he has quite influence, some influential contacts down in the south um, among Catholic politicians down in Croatia. He never, of course, gets much influence in Hungary because he's so anti-Hungarian. Um, but I think also he manages to establish um, influence because Franz Josef realizes, you know, this is the heir apparent. He gives him more power. He makes him Inspector General of the Armed Forces. And, of course, that's the role he uh, is playing when he goes down to Bosnia in 1914 and gets assassinated in Sarajevo. So I think, um, I mean, he certainly, he himself certainly fears that he, or feels that he, he should have more influence and that he not, does not have enough influence. So he is constantly uh, pushing for that. But I think he manages he manages to achieve it to a certain degree, and I think historians have generally looked into this and concluded that he's a figure of some influence by 19, certainly by 1913, 1914, that he can uh, he can bring about the rise and fall of various ministers. He actually, you know, he would probably have um, removed Conrad, the chief of the general staff, if he had um, if he had lived on, I suppose. Yeah. Did he approve of the uh, temporary removal of Conrad in 1911? Um, as far as I know, no. As far as I know, um, I think uh, I think not actually, and I think that because it's temporary, and then he is brought, then Conrad is brought back in. So as far as I know, no. But I think, I mean, he certainly. And another person I haven't mentioned is the Foreign Minister Ehrenthal who was also a Franz Ferdinand appointment, um, but again, typically falls out with Franz Ferdinand. Um, and um, uh, by the time of Ehrenthal's death in um, 1912, he's certainly fallen out with Franz Ferdinand. But um, yeah, I mean, Franz Ferdinand is a person who has considerable, I would say, growing power. But um, <clears throat> it's all kind of hypothetical about, you know, what he might have done if he had actually become emperor. But there are a lot of fears, particularly, let's say, by Hungarians and some other groups in the empire that um, he would have tried to rule autocratically and would certainly have tried to uh, cut down Hungary to size, I suppose. 
Why did he have so little influence with the parliamentary parties? Um, that's an interesting question. I think, um, well, he doesn't believe that much in Parliament, for a start, I think. Um, I think um, he has some influence with, the, there's a Christian social party in Vienna, um, run by Karl Lueger. He has some influence there um, because of its Catholic, um, uh, Catholic ideology. Um, but I think really Franz Ferdinand, he's more interested, rather like Franz Josef the Emperor, he's more, more interested in military affairs and uh, ministerial affairs, foreign policy, that type of thing. I mean, that's, it's a bit like asking whether Fra why was France, I mean, Franz Josef wasn't that interested in uh, Parliament either, really. So I think um, for Franz Ferdinand, the key thing is uh, having influence over military and foreign policy. Affair, uh, military affairs and foreign policy. Um, he's certainly interested in uh, church appointments and the Catholic Church. Um, yeah, and um, and takes an interest in the South Slav question to some degree. He he's deeply anti-Serb, and um, as the book shows, he does try to um, he does have his own possible solution for the South Slav question in the South of how it might be might be solved, but it's probably going to be solved in his view through force, I think. Uh, how serious and in what fashion was uh, Franz Ferdinand's interest in trialism? Yeah, well, that's a controversial issue, this issue of trialism, which is about the um, creating of a third, um, third sect, a third element in the state to go alongside Austria and Hungary. Um, the book, I think, suggests that um, it suggests it, it analyzes what trialism meant for Archduke Franz Ferdinand and suggests that for him it was a way towards a centralized Habsburg state. And most historians, and the book deals with this a little bit about how um, to the degree to which Franz Ferdinand had perhaps rejected the idea of trialism by 1912, 1913. But certainly there was enough interest to Franz Ferdinand in this to get to make um, some politicians in the South, particularly Croat politicians or Slovenes, to make them think that he might do something for them. So um, a lot of this is rumours, and I think a lot of the, the, you know, one might go into the degree to the reasons why Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, but some of it was certainly to do with um, uh, the interest he had showed it, shown in this um, uh, in the um, uh, South Slav question or the Yugoslav question in the South and the fears of some uh, individuals that he was going to block some Yugoslav solution or not. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit difficult to say how we don't have a lot, a lot of information. We don't have a lot of evidence about his real interest in trialism. There are one or two, I think, memoranda about this which were drawn up for him, which suggests he had some interest in this um, territorial unit. But by about 1913, I think he's largely uh, rejecting this idea. In the uh, rotten essay, Great Expectations, the Habsburg heir apparent and the Southern Slavs, uh, the author uh, seems to believe that the adoption of trialism would have averted the decline of the monarchy's great power position in the Balkans after the two Balkan wars. Why? What's the rationale of that? Sorry, I didn't quite get that. What was the What was the question? 
Uh, the question was, why did uh, Rotten, why does he believe that the adoption of trialism would have averted the uh, monarchy's, uh, the decline of the monarchy's great power position in the Balkans uh, in the period up to June 1914? By adopting trialism. Um, well, because I think it would have, um, I mean, Rotten, he has his particular view on this, but I think uh, because uh, the sense would be very much that um, if the empire, I mean, we come back to this point about how should the empire solve the South Slav problem. Either it's going to do it by some forceful solution, or it's going to do it, or perhaps a destructive solution, or it's going to do it with a constructive solution. And I think that the constructive solution would be you take the empire takes uh, takes this into its own hands. It um, creates a trialist uh, element in the south of the empire and that uh, hypothetically that would have created more stability in the south and it would have uh, perhaps it would have um, uh, solved this problem once and for all it would have it would we might say it would have united bosnia croatia and some of the um, Dalmatia and some of those other land, South Slav lands into one unit. It would have shut Serbia out once and for all. Um, it's all very hypothetical and idealistic, really, because um, it would have required Hungary to have agreed to this, and Hungary almost certainly would never have agreed to this. So it's all, it, 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 yeah, one could say, one could say um, in theory that this would have. Um, been uh, been excellent for the empire, but I think it's just it's it's pretty idealistic, really. What seems very noticeable in the book is that some of the authors, but not all, follow the recent trend in scholarship. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Pieter Johnson, uh, which argues that the monarchy was not fated to collapse, and that it was not in a state of crisis circa uh, 1914. Um, on the eve of the Great War. Why do you think that some, but not all, of the contributors of uh, this uh, essay collection um, adheres to the new scholarship as opposed to the old? Well, I don't see a division between the old and the new, actually. I think um, the book uh, is suggest The book is coming at this from many different angles. We've got seven uh, historians from seven different countries here, there, some of them are looking at this um, question from point of view, let's say, international relations and diplomatic history, in which case they will tend to believe that those historians, and I'm thinking of people like Lothar Herbert, um, Thomas Otte, um, Freud Bridge, they will, they will tend to think that the position, international position of the empire was pretty dire by 1914 and therefore it was pushed into um, uh, it was quite ready to, to have a conflict because of that with Serbia. Um, perhaps some of the chapters which are thinking about this from a more social point of view, social historian, social history point of view will will incline to the Peter Judson view. I don't take the Peter Judson view as um, uh, the absolute ideal of new scholarship, because I think the reality, you know, and I think that's a great book by Peter Judson, but it is not very good on the whole issue about um, the position of the empire as an empire. Um, you could easily, you could easily say that yes, this empire is 
for people who lived in it. It was quite a pleasant place to be in the years before 1914. It wasn't absolutely full of social tensions. Uh, but you have to then um, look at why, why would a war break out in 1914? And um, I, would, I would say basically, I mean, just to take one example, Croatia, we have two chapters about Croatia in this book. And uh, my own chapter about Croatia very much, I think, reinforces the idea that uh, politics is very fluid in Croatia, but also emphasizes the fact that this was not an ideal, um, what would be called a Rechstadt. It wasn't an ideal rule of law going on in Croatia, nor was it the case in Bosnia as well. So I think um, I'm, I'm very much do not agree with some recent historians who suggested that or tried to suggest that the Habsburg Empire was some kind of model Rechstadt, that there was a kind of rule of law uh, and that tensions were declining. Um, I don't think Peter Judson is actually suggesting that tensions are declining. He's, he, he would say basically this is a, um, an empire which is trying to cope with modernity, uh, perhaps is coming through this. And, you know, I, I, I myself would not say that this empire is doomed in any way. But I think there are deep-seated problems in uh, the Habsburg Empire in terms of um, uh, politics, the political setup, uh, social tensions, which is not really managing to overcome. And um, one has to kind of consider those quite carefully uh, as to why this empire then breaks up at the end of the First World War. I don't really, I certainly don't subscribe to the idea that this empire breaks up simply because of the First World War. I think there are deep-seated problems here from before the war, which are never really solved. So, yeah, so to go back to your question, I think um, I think it's a little bit um, perhaps inevitable that some historians will approach this uh, uh, looking more for the tensions in society and some some will be or some will be more aware of the the actual position of the Habsburg Empire in international relations. And those chapters in the book certainly will be more negative about the position of the empire. Uh, if we then get look a bit more closely, say, at Bosnia and Croatia um, or domestic politics, then perhaps to, um, you know, to some degree life was going on. There were tensions, but life was going on um, and might have, might, have, um, might have been able to adjust, but for the First World War. You don't believe that the uh, Heiner Grunert, sorry if I mispronounce it, essay is um, perhaps the most teleological in nature in, in the book? Um, I think that particular chapter is, yes, it's, well, that chapter, that chapter, it's about the um, position of the Serb citizens in, in um, Bosnia-Herzegovina and how they're treated by the Hasbro state. I think that's, um, I wouldn't say it was teleological. I would say it's basically trying to um, understand why Serb citizens in Bosnia um, were slowly alienated from the Habsburg state. And I think he sh he's basically trying to show that this didn't just happen in the First World War, that there, were, there was already an alienation before the war. Um, and I, I try to do that also in my chapter to a certain degree, or it's what I believe that in, um, uh, in Croatia, there's already a lot of alienation from this empire by certain educated parts of society, particularly perhaps lawyers, and many of the politicians are lawyers. So they have a very clear view about uh, that the rule of law is not working in Croatia. 
So I think some of these chapters fit together rather nicely in that way in showing that um, there are sections of society, or perhaps perhaps that's a little bit too strong, perhaps some influential individuals in society would be a better way to do it, who um, who believe that, um, or they're, 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 they're slightly worried about the course of this, the way this empire is going, and uh, some of them are already alienated before 1914. And therefore, when the First World War breaks out, of course, these people, some of these people flee abroad because they feel this empire is, um, you know, they don't want, um, they want to work for its collapse, I suppose. Reading the essay by Professor Ott, one notices that he, one notices that he omits or belittles uh, two points made by David Stevenson um, in his book, Armaments and the Coming of War in Europe. Uh, those points being that, one, there was a great power race, arms race, started by Russia, that the, by 1914, the central powers were on the verge of losing it. And second, the consequences following from this fact. Why do you think that Ott, Professor Ott omits these um, two points? Sorry, what was the second point? The consequences following from the fact that the diplomatic, strategic, etc., from the fact that the central powers were on the verge of losing this arms race. Um. Yeah, I can't really say. I think, I mean, his, um, that chapter uh, by Professor Otti is particularly trying to think about management, kind of crisis management in 19, in July 1914. And um, certainly there is a, I think that, I mean, there's, there are certain unspoken assumptions, perhaps also, also, possibly in that chapter that one of the assumptions I think underlying which he as you say may not have brought out was the uh, the fact that it's better for the central powers to have a war now in um, uh, July 1914 August 1914 rather than later when Russia will be even more even stronger I think he does say that doesn't he in that chapter I can't remember exactly uh, he, he brings it up tangentially but not in the context of uh, what David Stevenson sort of um, okay. talks about in terms of the the arms race. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, in the uh, Danilo Saronic, again, I apologize for the mispronunciation, if any, um, essay on um, uh, Serb intelligence. Would it be yeah. correct? Would it be correct to say that uh, he does not take the view of of Christopher Clark and uh, others that uh, Serbia was prior to 1914 uh, or up to June 1914 acting in the role of, for lack of a better expression, a rogue state? Um, well, that, I think Danilo Sharanats actually, he's a younger Serb historian and uh, very much, I think he, um, I think he appreciates the fact that um, uh, attention should be drawn to Serbia's role in the um, uh, causes of the First World War. And Christopher Clark also very much drew the attention of that and drew the ire of many Serb nationalist historians, I suppose, by focusing on that. I think um, Danilo Sharinac, in fact, in the chapter, he does say he does say that um, he, he very much questions this idea that we should call uh, Clark had called um, Serbia a rogue state. Um, I think 
he is more concerned in that chapter to show the problems of the political military crisis hitting um, Serbia in 1914 and to show that the, the rogue element, I think there's a rogue element in Serbia uh, and it's really the, ro the, the, the rogue element is that of uh, certain uh, military elements in the state, um, paramilitary elements in that state. I think that's a better way to think about it. Whereas I think probably the politicians are less to be uh, indicted, essentially. So I think the problem is that Clark's general uh, sweeping comment that this is a rogue state um, is a bit too sweeping, really, that this is a state who, uh, you know, Serbia was trying to play a role, um, um, let's say, kind of normal role, role in international relations to some degree, but was very much being knocked off course by uh, this underlying tension in society between um, uh, uh, politics and uh, politics and the military. And I think um, Sharonat brings that out rather nicely. I mean, his focus in that chapter is very much to think about, um, well, to challenge the idea that Serbian military intelligence was in some way not, um, not very culpable, didn't have really very much of a role. And as a result, we would say that Serbia really didn't have much of a role in the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. But I think she, he shows rather clearly that uh, the Black Hand, uh, even if um, that organization was not directly involved in directing the plot to assassinate, uh, assassinate France Ferdinand, actually had quite a crucial uh, indirect role of supplying uh, arms to the assassins. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's an interesting chapter because I think it brings out the kind of the um, uh, the destabilizing element of Serbia in the Balkans, and I think that's uh, that's a reality, and that has to be uh, you know thought about by historians. It's very complicated, but I think that chapter sets it out rather clearly for the reader. In uh, Professor Bridges' elegant and wonderful essay, would you agree that he seems to ignore the alienation that had taken place between Vienna and London? in the years prior to 1914, that the old alliance ties, which were active up to the mid to late 1890s, were by 1914, at least in London's perspective, ancient history, and that a lot of the policymakers in London, people like um, Nicholson and Crow in particular, regarded uh, Vienna as more or less uh, Berlin's cat's paw and therefore tended to, for the most part, ignore um, Austro-Hungarian concerns about um, the conditions in the Balkans. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would dream of contradicting what Professor Bridge says in that chapter, because he is the real expert. You know, he spent a, almost a lifetime writing about this subject. I think he's he's fully aware of the different dimensions of this, and... Um, uh, He's he looks at this in that particular chapter. He's looking at things very much through the uh, eyes, isn't he, of the Austrian ambassador and the Austrian ambassador's links to the royal family. Um, it's possible, yes, that um, in the Foreign Office there was a rather different point of view. But I think I think yes, he he's suggesting there that the British Foreign Office essentially uh, was not openly 
um, hostile. As you say, it may be the case more that um, the, the British Foreign Office focus have been much more on Germany than on um, on Austria-Hungary in, in recent recent years, and that that is a reality. Um, so yeah, I mean that's 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 a kind of possible extra context he could have put in there. But I think it's an interesting, as you say, it's an eloquently written chapter, and um, he's trying very much to. Uh, put over the, the the fact that when um, uh, the elite in Britain did look at the um, Austrian Anglo-Austrian relations, they um, they they established essentially that they were they were they were very cordial and that they um, they had not fundamentally deteriorated. I think there is a whole issue, as you say, about whether in the kind of the wider context the relations had uh, were not not particularly important for Britain in a way that they had been back in the 19th century, yeah. Why did the book, I'm not sure about the conference in 1914, but why did the book not have an essay dealing with uh, Magyar concerns, subject matters, etc.? Well, that, that that's a useful thing to ask about, and um, I tried to address a little bit of that in my chapter about um, Croatia. But I agree. I mean, there, there, there are some angles that I would have liked to have covered in this book. I think um, one, one is certainly, as you say, one is certainly the Hungarian point of view a bit more directly. And I was, uh, I did try to get a chapter on that, but it didn't come to fruition in the end. Another one was, you know, in retrospect, we had a very good paper at the conference in uh, 2014 by Dominic Levin about Russia and I think I would have quite liked you know in retrospect it would have been nice to have um, a chapter on the Russian point of view particularly the Russian view of the South Slav question and its um, interaction there in the Balkans that would have been a, a really good addition actually so there are a number of there are a number of um, there are a number of elements where um, uh, a number of themes which it would have been nice to bring out a bit more. I think in the introduction to this book, um, I do actually mention the Russian point of view because I was a bit aware that it would have been nice to have covered that a bit more um, overall. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? What would it be? Um, I think what I would, what my, my key theme is to reassert the South Slav question or the Southern Slav question as a um, an important factor in causing the First World War, because I think, you know, Christopher Clarke did this a little bit by refocusing our attention on the Balkans as a key um, a key, key area which caused the First World War. But so often historians looking at the period up to the First World War or into the war also, they focus so much on the German Germany's role, uh, Britain's role, those are the, or sometimes Russia, of course. Uh, Habsburg Empire tends to get neglected, as usual, very much. And yet the Habsburg Empire was really there at the core, uh, at the real center, I think, of the causes of the First World War. And so the book is trying to reassert the, uh, you know, through the personality of France Ferdinand, or through, through the event of Sarajevo, the, the horrendous event of Sarajevo, 1914, it's trying to reassert the, uh, position of the Habsburg Empire and the Balkans in the course of the First World War. That's rather a long answer, but I hope, that's, <laughs> hope that um, roughly summarizes what I think. On that observation, 
I would like to thank you very much, Professor Cornwall, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Cornwall. Thank you very much.